The Wild West. Excuse me. The Wild West. A time period that has been created and recreated time and time again for the silver screen. This will only take a moment. Games and everything in between. It's rich in history, but sometimes we get it wrong. Shocker. So I decided to give myself a crash course and broke my heart a couple of times along the way when separating the movie from reality. Giddy up. I want to be a cowboy, baby. Well, well, well. Welcome back to Learning Things. No. Shan't. I shan't. Welcome back to Learning Things, the show where we pick a topic and, uh, well, we learn some things about it. Now, in today's episode, as you are very well aware by now, we are covering the Wild West. And in my opinion, the Wild West is both a place and obviously a historical time period. Now, the time period was when America and the government at the time started to rapidly expand into the West. And place is, well, west of New York. Basically, all that was in the middle and further west of the continental United States. I love saying that, the continental United States. I always hear Americans saying that. Continental, the, the continental, the continental US. It just flows I don't know what it is, but whenever I get the chance to say it, I give it a shot. Now, it's considered that the Wild West time period started in 1865 or around then. And it was kind of around the time after the American Civil War had ended and the war had left most of America in economic turmoil, a bit of social upheaval, and people were looking for a fresh start. And luckily for these people that wanted a fresh start, they knew that they could actually get a fairly decent cheap piece of land in the West, because that's what the government was basically doing, pushing further and further West, stealing land from Native Americans, and then selling it to encourage more prosperity inland and further West, obviously. Jesus Christ, take a drink every time I say West. And to that, I say good luck. Now, the fact that they were forcing Native Americans to give up their land is awful. I don't feel like I need to particularly comment on that. Uh, Because I come from Australia, one of the other great stolen nations. So I'm not going to be throwing stones in this glasshouse. Now, I had to research uh, the Civil War to actually understand what on earth was going on. Uh, Again, Australian, not really in our standard curriculum at school. But basically, put really, really simply, the Civil War was between the North and the South of the 13 states at the time to basically decide whether slavery was going to become an ongoing concept as they were going to start expanding West. So when the Wild West began, the established states, so to say, were known as the original 13 states, and they were basically just situated in the east part of the continent. So they started pushing West, and the government was really encouraging people to get up, pack a bag, and start their new life out on the frontier And this was particularly encouraged because the president, Thomas Jefferson, had recently signed the Louisiana Purchase. And with it, this spawned the phrase manifest destiny, um, which is a pretty prevalent phrase back then. But these days, the manifestation of my own destiny has uh, personally a lot less to do with stealing land from native people, um, at least me. So each to their own, I suppose. The frontier spanned a huge expanse of land. It stretched from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. 
and included regions like Texas, Colorado, Kansas, and California. Now, they had discovered gold in California in 1840. So when 1865 rolled around and people were being encouraged to push west, it wasn't that big of an inconvenience if people were going to head to California because it was actually labelled and officially made a state in 1850, just 15 years prior. So the idea of heading west wasn't as frightening in some areas because there were already established towns, even if some of them were abandoned, as does happen seemingly overnight for a lot of gold rush towns in history. There was still an established area that they could come and make their own. But in between California and the original 13 states were some of the most beautiful expanses of untouched landscape. Think towering peaks of the Rocky Mountains, the Great Plains across the central regions covered in prairie and grassland, home to vast herds of bison, and the arid deserts of the southwest, where genuinely fairly resilient settlers carved out a life for themselves, despite honestly extreme conditions and very scarce water in a lot of places. Think cacti and like wide open spaces with weird lizards and of course tumbleweeds. Yes, fact, not fiction. I'm so pleased to know that tumbleweeds are a real thing, honestly. What a magical element in nature. Like what the fuck is a tumbleweed dude? Also, I love the naming of that thing being tumbleweed. Like it's weed that tumbles. Love it. Absolutely love that. If you too like the phrase tumbleweed, please let me know. Share your love for tumbleweeds with me, a fellow tumbleweed lover, enthusiast even. Frenchman's Gulch. This town is new to me. Now, life on the frontier was rough in the beginning because the weather that they had in the east wasn't nearly as hot as they were experiencing further inland in the west. And they also had wild animals they had to deal with, let's say, and and resources were scarce. Even though the expansion of railway lines into the west was making it more possible and easier for people to travel, it still meant weeks, if not months, in between shipments of goods. Now, naturally, because life did have its genuine challenges back then, they had a huge sense of community. They shared horses, tools, information, food, resources with each other. They helped each other to survive. They protected each other. And because it was so far away and and oftentimes a really isolated place to be, setting up a a little settlement, settlement, sorry, I'm not sure what that was. They built their own houses. They herded their own cattle, grew their own food. They had to be as self-sufficient as possible because... Help was so far away, they were so isolated, and, well, if they weren't self-sufficient, I can't imagine it going so well for them. For transportation, they had horses, mules, wagons, and just a side note, I was watching uh, Hateful Eight, a Quentin Tarantino movie this week to kind of get in the mood for the, the Wild West. By the way, if you haven't seen some Westerns before watching this, pause it, go and pick a Western, come back. You really have to just be in the vibe for it. Know what I'm saying? <clears throat> but I was watching Hateful Eight and it does start with, uh, you know, kind of like a bounty hunter in the back of a, a wagon with with his captive, let's call her. And it was just one of those moments where I was just like, fuck, I would love to travel by coach. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I completely understand why we have moved past the coach method of transport. Not really sure how else I can prove I understand that. But just imagine sitting in the back of a coach. You've got some alcohol, probably some morphine back then if you so felt like some pain relief. Kick your feet up. There's some curtains. The seats are, well, there's a cushion on them, I imagine. And you're looking out the window at some of the most beautiful untouched landscapes in North America. Are you kidding? I do want to clarify, though, this little fantasy of mine is strictly in beautiful places. I do not want to be bringing back horse and carriages for a trip down Parramatta Road, just in case, you know, that's what you thought I meant. No, I specifically mean the beautiful areas of North America. But because transport was so limited, so was communication because, you know, back then they didn't exactly have a uh, postal service the way we have it today, specifically because it was so fucking hard to get out there. There was a genuine risk of death like every day. So even when the train lines came in, it still wasn't that frequent and there wasn't a really prominent mail service yet. So for a while there, they had this thing called the Pony Express, I believe it was called, and it was literally just mail by horses and it would take weeks but they would come up and pick it up from you and go and deliver it and ah the pony express mining was another key industry there was loads of gold silver and other really valuable minerals that were still yet to be discovered so little mining towns would crop up basically overnight and then disappear basically just as quickly towns on the frontier weren't that far off what the movies kind of depict them as Like they were a bustling social place full of trade, commerce and, you know, social activities. Churches, a blacksmith, of course, a saloon, the general store, sometimes a school if they were lucky. So where possible, depending on how established each town was, they had whatever they deemed necessary for like the basic needs of survival in a completely isolated place. So whatever you needed to survive as a human being, that town did its best to cater to, to keep people happy and, well, social. Now, it was rough, but the silver lining to it being a difficult time was obviously the fact that these people pushing out west and starting a new life had the chance to own their own land, run their own ranches, and carve out this brand new life for themselves that wasn't necessarily as possible in the east where they'd come from. So while it was a time full of opportunities, it definitely did require resourcefulness, a sense of endurance and, well, true grit. So who else would be the perfect poster boy, so to say, of the Wild West than the cowboy? With their rugged demeanor, sharp spurs on the back of their boots, hat, lasso and enigmatic presence, the image has become somewhat synonymous with the time. Cowboys played a vital role in shaping the American frontier, but let's just say that their history isn't exactly what the movies paint them out to be. I had a tragic discovery researching cowboys. I'll be vulnerable with you. Cowboys weren't the exciting assholes that we thought they were. In fact, this episode was originally just going to be on cowboys because cowboys, woo, exciting. But after about 14 seconds worth of scrolling a webpage the history of cowboys, I found out that they were just that, men who herded cattle. So the smile was fading from my face fairly rapidly during those 14 seconds, and uh, I also managed to smash an entire bottle of Pinot Grigio that night. I'm unsure if those two events are related. 
But the origins of the cowboy can be traced back to the Spanish vaqueros, which is a Spanish word meaning cowboys. So obviously, when you push into a new settlement with not many people, there was a huge need for labor. And there happened to be a lot of Spanish vaqueros. Oh, God, I love saying that. Can you tell? (laughs) That were in need of work. So they would be employed by ranchers to maintain the cattle, drive them long distances, and then just generally take care of the lands that the ranch had. And the day in the life of a cowboy was rough. They faced horrible conditions. They were in the saddle all day. They also had something else that was trying to kill them, which was a stampede. Sometimes they would lose control of the herd of cattle for whatever reason, and stampedes could be deadly. In fact, the English word stampede actually comes from the Spanish word estampida, which we likely got from them during that time. But I like it. Estampida. Oh no, estampida. Lo siento, mi español no es bien, pero estoy aprendiendo. But there were three absolute non-negotiables for being a cowboy. Back then, you had to have exceptional horsemanship. Boy, needed to be able to ride. You need to know how to use a rope. And you had to have a pretty good understanding of cattle behavior. But if you, like me, thought that cowboys were lawless gunslingers, then I'm so incredibly sorry to tell you that that wasn't the case at all. While there was violence and conflict in the Wild West, you know, like today, most cowboys were hardworking individuals who abided by the law and respected the social order of the communities they were in, apparently. Another misconception is that cowboys were just, like, really quick to have a gunfight. Like, while there was conflict in the West, cowboys barely had a chance to let out a little yeehaw in between herding cattle, let alone sleeping. So the idea that they were just striking up a gunfight for no real reason is unfortunately inaccurate. (laughs) But where there is a big expanse of land and not that many lawmen to cover it, naturally, society ended up taking matters into their own hands. Enter bounty hunters, lawmen, and of course, outlaws. They tell me you're a man with true grit. What do you want, girl? Speak up at supper time. I'm looking for the man who shot and killed my father, Frank Ross, in front of the Monarch boarding house. The man's name is Tom Cheney. They say he's over in Indian Territory, and I need somebody to go after him. Bounty hunters had a pretty crucial role when it came to the law in a mostly untamed frontier. As we've covered, the government just didn't have the manpower to send more lawmen or sheriffs to these areas, so bounty hunters were there to kind of come in and basically perform a much cooler citizen's arrest. But it is pretty crucial to remember that bounty hunters were very rarely random people. They were often hired by private companies or by the law itself. And we'll get to bounty hunting as a career in a second. But put simply, they were hired to either capture or kill a fugitive for a reward, whether it be money or a bounty of some sort. It's in the name, really. It's in the name. They typically had to be fairly knowledgeable people to be a bounty hunter. They had to know the environment really well, where the secret hideouts were, the secret goings on, who was connected to who in the underworld. You couldn't just rock up to a random place and get going. You had to have some extensive knowledge of your area. So in terms of that last part, who was connected to who in the criminal underworld, what was going on in the criminal underworld in the Wild West? Yes, you could it. 
outlaw gangs like the James Younger Gang and the Wild Bunch. They'd terrorise communities, target banks, and because they knew the terrain better than anyone and there were no cops, they'd usually get away with it. Gambling in saloons was an integral part of the social fabric at the time, but there was no shortage of rigged games, cheating, and organised gambling rings. It allowed criminals to kind of take advantage of unsuspecting individuals, and obviously that often led to disputes, you can imagine. So, crime. In other words, horse and cattle theft was one of the big ones. And I'm sure you can understand why. The majority of employable opportunities in the West was on ranches herding cattle, so there was no shortage of cattle. There was also only so many cowboys to one ranch and only so many hours in the day for them to sleep, herd cattle, drive cattle, yeehaw, maybe once or twice if they had the time. They couldn't look after the ranch the whole time. There's only so many hours in the day. So yeah, some cattle got stolen. And then stolen horses would either be resold or used by the person that stole them. I say person because obviously we can't use the term cowboy because they were little angels in the Wild West, apparently. Ladies of the night was such a common practice that the profession actually became part of the informal economy. And while it wasn't illegal, it did tend to bring other criminal activities. Bounty hunters were the real cowboys. At least that's what I think we've attached the name cowboy to. Or maybe it's just me. But there's a reason there was a bounty put on the heads of these fugitives. They weren't easy to catch. (laughs) Now, this is kind of where I think we stray in terms of Hollywood and media. Bounty hunting as a career was extremely rare. It essentially wasn't really a thing. Most bounty hunters were actually lawmen. They were employed as a policeman and they happened to do this work as well. It wasn't necessarily a career. Now, think about, you know, any old scene from a Hollywood Western In real life, not everyone has the luck of Hollywood on their side. While a bullet whistles past their ear as they hide behind a well-placed rock reloading their weapon. You win some, you lose most. So whether or not they had a full-time career, it wasn't for long. Not necessarily because they were reskilling to a new industry. Usually meant they were dead. But there were some successful bounty hunters around the time, even if it was just a one-off. In 1863, there was a Mexican gang of serial killers known as the Espinosas. Felipe, Vivian and Jose Espinosa killed dozens of people and remained some of Colorado's most prolific serial killers. They began as general Western hooligans robbing a wagon here and there, but one of the wagons they robbed happened to be owned by a high-up priest in the area. They had a big old gunfight, and I guess the Espinosa kids lost their fear of firing at a person because not too long after, they started offing people. When Tom Tobin, a trapper and mountain guide in New Mexico, saw that there was an award out for the Espinosas, dead or alive, he set out to catch them. He showed up in Colorado with three heads of the gang members in a burlap sack and received his reward, thus making his bounty hunting career somewhat successful, you could say. Billy the Kid was born William H. Bonney Jr. or maybe Henry McCarty, we don't know. He was born in July of 1881 in New Mexico and orphaned at a young age. He turned to a life of lawlessness and survival and was one of the most notorious gunfighters of the West. He was taken into custody for the murder of a sheriff at one point, but he escaped jail and the law wasn't happy with that. When bounty hunter Pat Garrett saw that there was now a $5,000 bounty on Billy the Kid's head, Pat, who was going through some financial struggles of his own as a lawman, thought he would give it a go. 
He spent three months tracking down Billy, and once he knew where he lived, Pat actually hid in Billy's bedroom in the dark. When Billy came home after a night of drinking, Pat caught him off guard and shot him. He claimed to have killed 21 men, and that's how old he was when he died, but apparently the number is likely less than 10. But funnily enough, the term bounty hunter is likely just another Hollywood invention. The term bail was more used. Yes, they were getting a reward. And yes, the term stands up, it makes sense, but they didn't necessarily call themselves bounty hunters. The reason we use the term bounty hunter was actually only really reignited in the 1950s by Hollywood. I don't know how true this is, but it's interesting. Apparently, George Lucas may have had a lot to do with it because he labelled Boba Fett as a bounty hunter of San, Ho- San Holo, <laughs> Han Solo. And so far, this is all a bit of a theme. We've been excitedly latching on to all of these representations of life in the Wild West based on what the silver screen has, you know, shunned down on us. So I decided to talk to a real person about it, one who actually knows their stuff. The Arizona Ghost Riders is a super fun yet very educational YouTube channel headed up by Santi, who has had a love for the Wild West for some time. And for some reason, Santi agreed to sit down for a chat with me about the Wild West. Your channel is unreal. It is so cool. I didn't have enough time to even go through every single one of your videos. I went through some of the topics that I was particularly... Well, Lucy, there's over 300. I'm surprised you didn't have time. (laughs) <laughs> shocked honestly and a little it disappointed really too it's- i was gonna say it's a certain level of disrespect from me here i do have a question about how you even got into uh as you said kind of reenacting you i understand you have kind of like a traveling troupe of theater for this how did you get into that well you know i've always been interested in the history of the old west ever since i was a kid watching westerns with my father which is interesting because when I was growing up, there wasn't anything like, I mean, there were gunfight shows and performers, but those were people in theme parks, like the one I work at now, as a matter of fact. Those are the people that that were professionals at it. So there weren't just kids running around with real guns shooting blanks at each other for obvious reasons. So I sort of kept thinking at one point, I'm going to get to do that. And when I did get a chance to do it, it was with a, a sport that they do in America. Well, actually, they don't just do it in America. They do it globally called cowboy action shooting. People use real guns. They dress up like me in Old West clothes, and they shoot at targets in a timed scenario. And whoever does it the quickest and hits all the targets wins, essentially. I did that, but there was something missing for me. And I think it was the performance aspect. It was the the ability to actually, okay, I'm going to just say this, go out and shoot your best friend with a gun with a blank <laughs> in it. So, you know. <laughs> no paintball around you? Yeah, no, there is paintball. Paintball hurt. Have you ever been hit with a paintball? It doesn't feel I good, haven't. Lucy. Not good. No, I know it hurts. No, we just shoot blanks. We're we're just much better at that. Unless you live in New Mexico and your name is Alec Baldwin, in which case you don't shoot just blanks. So sorry, <laughs> you should probably better strike that from the podcast. <laughs> Even as a performer, uh, I always kept that interest in the history of it more so than some of the other people I was working with. And I realized, you know what, that's where that's where I'm supposed to be, I think. I think I'm supposed to be really researching the history, seeing how we do that with the way we perform and the way we do movies. Uh, I've, for some reason, that's where this all went to, and that's where I am right now. So, And that's my yeah. job, is basically I go out in the street and tell people, uh, John Wayne stood here, you know, uh, Dean Martin stood here, but this was what's wrong with that movie, and compared to the old West. That's, that's kind of what I do. 
And uh, that's, you know, I think I've found my niche in life. Niche? Niche? Noosh? Noosh? I've, heard, I've even heard niche. I don't know. I think you can you can really go with whatever with that word and someone will know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, with perfect segue there. Thank you so much. Do people film at this theme park or what kind of, where does your role go that way? The place is called Old Tucson and uh, it's been there since 1939 when they built a set for a movie called Arizona starring Gene Arthur and William Holden. And it was a Western location after the war, World War II. After World War II, it became a major filming location for all things Western and basically has been ever since, ever since then. I mean, we just filmed our third movie that ended in June. It wrapped up in June. I'd love to tell you, oh, Lucy, Westerns are coming back the way they were back in the 1960s and stuff. But I don't know if they are. I think that people are making a concerted effort to make them come back. And uh, I think it's really up to whether or not they're good movies and whether the the audience is going to grasp onto it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I watched True Grit again last night, which is one of my favorites, kind of get myself in the in the mood for this. And um, I, that movie is fantastic to me. The original one with John Wayne or the remake with, uh, what's his name? I have seen the original, but I was watching the remake last night. And on that point about not having Westerns, more Westerns rather, in this day and age, I do think the remakes play a really big part in that, in taking a, a tried and true story and reproducing it for the modern audience because ultimately that's what's going to decide whether or not the western genre survives in the way it once did how the audience perceives it yeah, absolutely and true grit's a really good example because the original movie the, it was based on a book about rooster cogburn and, and his life and and uh, marshall rooster cogburn sorry you know i've read the book too and i think the the newest true grit grasps it better than the older one did and the older one was was at a time period where it was really all about john wayne you know that was his vehicle and he won an Academy Award for it. But there's so many things wrong in the movie, historically. Oh, please. Right in the, the new movie. So what did True get, Grit get right as opposed to the original? Well, so the, the newest True Grit, you'll notice that the guns uh, the guns are more correct. That's a big problem with these older movies because when they make Westerns, everybody has these ideas of what the iconic Western firearms were, you know, the guns that won the West, the Colt Peacemaker, you know, the six shooter, the, yeah. the hog leg, whatever you want to call it, all those things, the Peacemaker. However, that thing didn't come out until 1873. So if you have movies that take place before 1873 and they have those guns, well, you got a problem. All of a sudden you're, you're pleasing the audience, but you're giving them wrong information. No, I wouldn't expect that from the Coen brothers though. Cause they, what's no, they and they didn't do that. They did a great job. As a matter of fact, if, if you watch the original true grit with John Wayne, he does this amazing thing when he goes, you remember in the one you just saw when he's across the field at the very end of the movie, he puts the reins in his teeth and he cocks a rifle with one hand because it's got a big loop on it. Yeah. Those, those things just didn't exist back then. It was all fabrication for the audience. It was entertainment value and that's, that's fine. It's just nowadays people watch those movies and they have this uneducated idea about what the West was like. And absolutely. And I think it's actually a really good time for you to be coming in because I was just thinking about how, you know, when that original John Wayne came out, people weren't nearly as educated as we are now. And, and that's not just from the schooling system. We have the internet and that is a wild place for finding the truth. You know, there is a lot of false on there, but there is a lot of archived information on the internet now that is just at our fingertips. So 
naturally, I don't think these embellished movies with falsities would work with our audience because we are a curious uh, generation. They're going to fact check, especially if something's interesting to them. So if it's a quick Google away to find out on the Arizona Ghostwriters channel that that in fact was not the case and they did not use that gun, then it kind of takes the magic out of the movie and the credibility. Yeah, it kind of does, you know, and that's that's the thing. But I think that the 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 challenge for all of us is to sit there and watch the movie and still enjoy it. I see comments a lot on my channel when I go and I say, okay, well, this is right in this movie or this TV show, but this is not right. They didn't have this. But I'm not telling people, I'm not damning the show, and I'm also not telling people to not watch it because I can always find something, and I'm going to say that, that's not just hyperbole, always. I can always find something about even the worst Westerns that I like because I'm looking for it. You know, I'm looking for something. They got that right. Or this was a nice touch. Cinematography is beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And so I appreciate the original true grit and I love the new true grit. Also, John Wayne had a screen persona that it's just bigger than life. It just can't be copied. No offense to Jeff Bridges. He did an amazing job and he probably was more like the character than John Wayne was. In fact, he was. I do have some questions about uh, true grit in terms of the validity the bear hat coats, the bear skin with the head on top, how frequent were those? Was it common or was it more like the town weirdo that happened to have one? So there was a an era called the fur trade era prior to the Old West. Fur trade era, mountain men, that's when the era of the mountain men, the trailblazers, the people who made the trails to get to California, you know, like those guys, they were the ones that would be able to go out into the the wilderness naked and then come back a week later in a full set of clothes. <laughs> you would have seen those, but you're right, I think. I think that if you look at a lot of photos or if you hear stories, people in that more Victorian era when it was later in the period probably didn't walk down the street with wearing a bunch of animal skins looking like a real bear. Yeah, I think we use them more for boots, you know, the gator skins and things like that. It was... Right. So the animal product was present. It just wasn't necessarily on your head quite so, uh, I don't even know the word for that. <laughs> well, you have to understand too that that back then, I'm not going to say people were crazy, but... Well, the morphine was pretty readily available. Right. I was just about to say, yeah, alcohol and drugs were definitely a thing because, you know, back then we didn't really have a lot of medical treatments for, for issues. So it was really about pain relief. So yeah, I mean, you, I you mean, get enough you, of the opium plant in you and wood, whatever variety you have. And yeah, you're going to wear a bare head walking down the street. Yeah. Well, particularly when you're curing that opium addiction with cocaine. Right. I imagine the two really do create some kind of magic there that makes wearing a bare hat make sense. That's true. That's true. Right, right, right. Well, it's funny when you read it because you hear stories about different people and what they wore and how amazing it was to see them. You know, most of the people in the Victorian society were dressed sort of, you know, vests, coats. The women were dressed in plainsman outfits or maybe they were wearing bustles and corsets. Who knows? But, you know, a guy walks into town or rides into town on a on the back of a horse with a big fur hat. You know, it's going to probably raise some eyebrows. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that was that was kind of the town weirdos get up. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I don't don't imagine the sheriff walking around with one on. Um, but yeah, speaking of the sheriff, no. bounty boards. Were bounty boards as in the displaying of, of the different wanted criminals? Was that accurate? Not really, no. So yeah, How just throwing like- everything for you. 
<laughs> so the, the whole idea, and you know, that was a shocker when I found out about it too. Back in the old West, the idea that the guy was walking around, the sheriff was walking around nailing wanted posters up to every post. That just didn't happen. That didn't happen. If the, nice. if there were wanted posters or wanted reward sheets, those kinds of things, they were usually in the sheriff's office yeah. and not usually pinned to the wall. They were on a desk and files, just like it would be today. Yeah, no, I kind of thought about that, but I, I, it was one of those things where I never thought to discredit it. It was only once I started thinking about life in the West and I thought back to my playing Red Dead Redemption 2, which by the way, I'm excited that you've played that as well, because I just think that game is a masterpiece. But the, I'm sure that the reason they have the bounty board in the game, for example, is more just for the gameplay. Right, it was for the gameplay just, in that yeah, game, sure. Yeah, the bounty boards, I'm I'm not shocked to hear that they weren't just plastered. I, I'm going to tell you, if I was to make an Old West game, I'd put that in there too. Because one of the things I love about Red Dead is that whole open world deal where you can just basically do anything. I was telling some people the other day on a tour, these young kids, I said, yeah, when I played it, I didn't know until the second time that I played it that you could actually go and rob a train, just rob a train. I never knew. I saw them go by. I just never knew you could just jump on a train and rob it. And they were like, yeah, man. I'm like, well, I know now. Amazing. Red Dead Redemption is um, holds a special place in my heart for me because it brought a lot of people your age and younger to have a knowledge of the Old West. And the, the good thing about that is when I grew up, Saturday mornings, uh, Westerns were on. In your generation, Westerns aren't on. They just, no. for whatever reason, are not on. So an entire generation or more has been lost to the knowledge and the enjoyment of Westerns and the Old West. And so here comes Red Dead Redemption. And all of a sudden now all these kids are like, wow, I want to know more. How can I do this? How can I do that? Or was it really like this or was it not like this? You know. And uh, when I first started the Red Dead Redemption video, if you look at the comments, almost every third comment is mad at me because I poked at his leather hat. <laughs> you know, that's a, my partner and I sat down and went, huh? Right. A lot of people. Yeah. And they got upset. And I realized I had to talk to the younger guys at work and say, why are people getting so bent out of shape? It's a game. It's like, no, no, no. They get really passionate about it. I said, but this guy cursed me out because I said the leather hat was not a practical hat to wear. Yeah. And he just like got so upset and then he blocked me. And I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. That kid's growing up to wear a bear hat. Don't worry about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say about Red Dead, what that taught me, funnily enough, was how beautiful America is and, and that period in the frontier when they were moving across West, what that untouched land would have been like. Um, and we know, I know that, that America is stunning. You have every biosphere. But I would love to go to uh, the Grizzlies, Strawberry particularly. Now, these are places that in the game, have, yeah. where you work in that theme park is Arizona, which I'm guessing is kind of serving as that arid desert area. Right. I mean, I'm sure you guys have beautiful sunsets too, but there's nothing quite like being at the base of a bunch of mountains when the sun is setting. But out here, the, the mountains turn red. It's, it's quite stunning. And I saw that in the game, as a matter of fact. I think I'm pretty sure I saw that in the game or something like it. And I thought, wow, they really nailed this. That's it. Those wolves are brutal in that game. Yeah, they really are. The female medicine. Now, in your video about, you know, the, as we were talking about earlier, drugs and recreational stuff like that. And obviously opium was readily available. Now, right. one of the morphine products on the bottle, I had a good giggle because the byline for this product was the great blood purifier and system regulator. 
<laughs> for opium. Now, I, I don't know how we how we could describe opium as having those qualities, but I'm sure it can make you feel like it's doing that. Right. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> I don't think back then that they knew how to actually say uh, things like the, gosh, this is tough to say even to you, and I've, I don't even know you that well. But like when the menstrual cycle would happen, yeah, I don't think they actually had a, a, a way of saying that that was polite. Oh, so that's what it's leaning towards. I assumed it may have been one of those old kind of women hysteria. Yeah, I think that's probably it. I'm going to take a wild guess and, and say that back then they probably, when it came to sexual relations, it was more about form and function than it was about Absolutely. real pleasure. And so most likely the man did his duty. Wow, I cannot believe I'm having this conversation with you. <laughs> the man would sit there and do his duty. And I think the woman, you know, when he was done, the woman's like, okay, well, Give me some opium. <laughs> oh, man. Imagine that. Invigorator won't be invented for another 30 years. So give me some opium over there. You did mention that uh, the, the bounty hunter that got Billy the Kid, Pat Garrett, his gun went for $6 million. How often do we see Wild West memorabilia? A lot of it's in personal collections. And what happens is every 10 years or so, something pops up from a personal collection to another personal collection. Like uh, another thing that went for millions was the only known photograph of Billy the Kid, which is a tintype. Which is if you look him up in the line, you'll find him. He's got a little buck teeth going on, a little gun uh, on his right hand. And that went for millions too. So those things just sort of get almost like baseball cards. They get traded, but for millions and millions of dollars. So uh, yeah, those those things do pop up. What is your favorite Western? That's a tough one. Yeah, I was going to say, I've left you with the hardest one at the end. Either Tombstone or maybe Outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood. Tombstone's a big one, and it's important because up until Tombstone, costuming got a little skewed, and the historical costuming was starting to get a little strange. I mean, you had people like Kirk Douglas wearing tight leather shirts yes. the entire time, showing off all the uh, you know the chest hair and all that, and, and Buscadero rigs, which are the big gun rigs where the gun hangs yeah. down to your knee. And then all of a sudden, Tombstone comes along and everybody looks like they would have looked in a Remington painting. Then all of a sudden now, everybody else is doing it. So it kind of changed the way Hollywood sees Westerns. It's more accurate oh. now. And the the uh, Clint Eastwood one you mentioned, Josie. Outlaw Josie Wales one. is just a great movie. Right. You have to see it. Okay. All right. Tombstone and Josie Wales, they're on the list. Well, thank you so much, Santi, for your time. Uh, this afternoon. I really appreciate it. I've had a ball asking you these questions. I do enjoy chatting to someone who absolutely knows their craft, even if it is this much of a niche, niche, niche. Ooh, niche. We didn't say that. Niche. That's good. You're welcome. Thank you very much. So there you have it, I guess. So we really only grazed the surface of the Wild West. I wanted this episode more to be an understanding of what was real and what was fake in the Wild West. And that's why Santi was such an excellent person to talk to about this. But I have to agree with him, even though they might get it right or wrong, it shouldn't necessarily take away from the art. And I think he made a good point by suggesting that the Western genre is kind of fading out of, of society's lenses. But Hollywood has made the Wild West such a fun part of American history. And if I can recommend some of my favorite Westerns, um, they're mostly modern. I would suggest the remake of True Grit, as you heard Santi and I talking about. 
Django Unchained is fantastic, but a little prior to the West, I believe. I think that one's set a little earlier, though, because slavery was obviously very prevalent. That is the whole plot of the film, but a great film nonetheless. Anything with Clint Eastwood in and you'll get yourself some real classic cowboy action. Uh, not cowboys, sorry. God. Ugh. Outlaw action. Also, obviously, please check out Santee's channel over at Arizona Ghost Riders on YouTube. It is full of some of the most fascinating little tidbits, bite-sized episodes on Time in the Wild West. He is a very knowledgeable, fun, cheeky man. And you can spend hours on that channel. I know I spent a solid amount of time watching his videos before I had a chat to him. So if you're looking for some fact versus fiction or just general information about a time of American's history that has solidified itself in pop culture, then head to Arizona Ghost Riders on YouTube and have some fun. But yeah, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. This one was a really fun one to me. I hope you have a fantastic day slash afternoon slash morning slash evening. Please circle whichever applies. If you could give this episode a review on your podcast app of choice, I would very much appreciate that. And I will see you guys next time on Learn Tanks. Yeehaw! Had to do at least one. Thank you.